Well, greetings, church. Let's pray as we get started. Father, I thank you, Jesus, that you are the word made flesh. And so I pray that you would put skin on these words that I'm about to preach. And I pray that you would make them active and living. I pray, Lord, that you would divide this morning between the bone and the marrow. And I pray that we would be receptive to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're continuing in our uh, sermon series, A Firm Foundation, and this morning uh, we're going to be talking about discipleship. And uh, when, when Jesus walked the earth, uh, the temple at the time, uh, built by King Herod, it was the dwelling place of God. It was a symbol of Jerusalem, of a people. It was the symbol of a nation. Uh, it was the center of worship. It was the center of economics. It was the center of government and in the center of power. And as Jesus and his disciples walked the streets of Jerusalem, they could see the temple. And it must have been a sight to behold with its massive walls and doors and steps all designed to bring you into the very presence of God. It was a holy and set-apart place. And the historian Josephus gives us a description of the temple and especially the gate into the holy place. And what he has to say about it is, as the holy house itself was placed in the midst of the inmost court, that most sacred part of the temple, it was ascended into by 12 steps. And in front, its height and its breadth were equal, and each 100 cubits. It's 150 feet. The first gate was 60 cubits high, or 105 feet, and 25 cubits broad, 38 feet. But that gate, which was at the end of the first part of the house, was, as we have already observed, all over covered with gold, as was its whole wall about it. It had also golden vines above it from which clusters of grapes hung as tall as a man's height. A Babylonian curtain embroidered with blue and fine linen and scarlet and purple and of a contexture that was truly wonderful. And it's, it's said that the wealthy citizens of Jerusalem could bring gifts of gold and metal workers would actually add the gold to the branches, grapes and leaves, and create an ever-growing vine. Okay, so people could come, bring those gifts, and it would be an ever-increasing gold vine. This was a, an, a piece of artwork that was continually in progress. So remember that. For Jesus and his Jewish disciples, the image of uh, vine and branches or clusters of grapes and fruit would harken back to the prophets uh, of the Hebrew Scriptures. And it will be a repeating and echoing parable concerning Israel, uh, Israel's Messiah, and, and even eventually extending to all those that connect to Israel through Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, in the book Daily Life in the Times of Jesus, the Frenchman Henry Daniel Rops said, it was not by chance that the Old Testament compared the chosen people to a vine, nor by hazard Jesus likened himself to the vine and made of wine the tangible symbol of his blood. Isaiah 5, 1 through 2 says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it 
to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Jeremiah 2.21 says, Yet I planted you as a choice vine from the purest stock. How then did you turn degenerate and become a wild vine? Hosea 10.1 says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. And his country improved. He improved his pillars. And also we hear echoes of the same image in the Psalms. In Psalms 80, 8 through 10, it says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Now, before we get into our text in John 15, 1 through 8, I think we should define the word parable. A parable is simply a figure of speech. It's where we use images and where these images are drawn from, from nature. They're drawn from common life. And, and the parable is an earthly story with a heavenly application. It's a good teaching method. It was exercised by Jesus in his spreading of the good news and the spreading of his message. Identifying the different characters of the parable will help us as we exegete the passage and the true vine is Christ Jesus. The vine dresser is the eternal father. The branches are the Lord's disciples. And we can infer from the context of the passage that fruit symbolizes those good deeds or good works. The vine and the branches and the fruit were not only agricultural symbols that the crowds would, would be familiar with. These same images were also all over the temple and all over their coins as well. And Jesus, while he's in Jerusalem with his disciples, while he's going from the upper room where they celebrated the Passover and crossed through the city, past the temple, maybe even going through the courtyard of the temple, to go into the Garden of Gethsemane, he stops and he speaks to his followers. And he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine grower. And can you imagine this is an incredible statement that I wonder if we miss due to our unfamiliarity with the symbols that are represented. We fail to see the magnitude of this, pro this proclamation of Jesus. The nation of Israel has always been referred to as the vine. Now Jesus is stating that he is the true vine. The immediate claim made by Christ himself is his clear and unambiguous proclamation that he is the true vine, not just any vine. The term true in the Greek, alethene, as an adjective can also be translated as dependable or genuine or real. Israel was originally and permanently chosen and set apart to be an example and a witness to the world of how a wholly set-apart people should live how they should act, how they should present themselves. And in this statement, Jesus is declaring himself to be the true representation of those people, of Israel. Jewish by blood, he alone becomes the holy set-apart example of how God's people should live and act and present themselves. The branches then become those that attach themselves to him, not through nationalism, 
not through Jewish identity alone. He doesn't end the metaphor of Israel being the branches, but rather he extends the invitation further. Remember what we said earlier, wealthy citizens of Jerusalem could bring gifts of gold and metal workers would add the gold to the vine, the grapes and the leaves. And it would be this ever growing and increasing vine. It would be a living piece of art that would always be being added onto. And this is Jesus is now saying, I'm extending this to the whole world. But, in, but it's an attachment to Jesus, the perfect Israelite, not Israel, the imperfect yet set-apart nation that makes you a branch that is abiding in the vine and bearing fruit. In our culture, we might say it like this. It's attachment to Jesus, not church membership, that saves and causes you to abide and bear much fruit. Is Jesus against church membership? Hardly. But, but membership doesn't save you and it doesn't keep you from being cut off. Is Jesus against Israel? Has he replaced them? Has he thrown them away? Hardly. But nationalism and Jewish identity alone won't save you or keep you from being cut off. It'll later be tied to Romans 11 where he talks about the grafting in. But no longer are they a part of the vine simply because they're born Jewish. No more than going to church or church membership alone makes you a part of Christ, the true vine. Now hear this. To be a part of the vine, you must be attached to the true vine, Jesus. There's no way around him. Then we become the branches of that vine. And the vine grower, God the Father, anticipates that fruit will come from these branches, just like we would. If you have a grapevine, after so many years, you expect the branches to bear jalapeno peppers. Grapes. Grapes. That's what you expect. And if it doesn't, then you go, I wonder what's wrong with my grapevine. Why is it not bearing fruit? The purpose of being a branch on a vine is to produce fruit. So let's read the scripture again. Jesus speaking says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. There's good news. So even if I'm, <laughs> even if I'm bearing fruit, Jesus is going to go ahead and prune that back a little so it'll even make more fruit. You've already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. If I had a branch up here, a, a, a a grapevine, and I cut a branch off of it and I threw it in the floor, would that branch then bear fruit? No one in this room would believe that it would bear fruit. But many of us live our life that way. As though we can be disattached from Jesus, not his follower, and still bear fruit. Yeah, in name, but we'll get to that in a minute. 
Just as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. Now I want you to laser in on that last verse. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. So how is the Father glorified? Glorified, honored to think, supposed to be of opinion. Matthew 5, 16 says it this way. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. 1 Peter 2, 12 says, conduct yourself honorably among the Gentiles so that Though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. God's reputation, his character, his integrity is upheld and honored by us, bearing much fruit and becoming Jesus' disciples. Those not following Jesus are not his followers. Let it sink in a minute. Those not following Jesus are not his followers. It sounds so simple that I risk sounding stupid even saying it. But that's what Rick and Charlie preached on last week. Loving God with an undivided heart. John, would you come here a minute? So... Now walk back towards the exit sign. <laughs> so I'm following John, okay? Now I can follow John like this. Now John, turn around and take me to the cross. You what? Turn around and take me to the cross. But in the disciples' days... Go ahead. (laughs) This is what it meant. You would walk so close, they would have a saying that you would walk, thank you, that you would walk in the dust of your rabbi. They They would say, may the dust of the rabbi be on you. Why? Because you're walking so close to him. In those days, they're wearing sandals and they're walking on dusty roads. You're walking so close to him that the dust would actually be getting on you. It's not as he's walking along and you're like, ah, la, la. We got that example, right? The children of Israel in the desert. And it really... It's one of my pet peeves because every time I talk about that or any time I'm in a small group and I talk about the children of Israel, there's always somebody that goes, dummies. I mean, you had Jesus right there performing all those miracles. And I mean, how could you not follow him? I don't know. You tell me. We see it now. Why aren't we following any closer? 
We think we're so different. I don't know if we are. But following him so closely that his dust would get on us. It's not following him as far back as I can and still kind of being his follower. It's so close. There's a Russian proverb that says if you chase two rabbits, you'll not catch either one. The meaning is simple, but the consequence is dire. Focus on one or you get none. The Bible would say you can't serve God and mammon as well. doesn't mean don't have a job. Don't take it to the extreme. What it's saying is you can't serve two masters. You have one, and you'll walk in his dust or you'll walk in the dust of the other one. But don't deceive yourself and think you can be a follower of Jesus and pursue everything else but Jesus. He's your weekend hobby. That's not how it works. Those not following Jesus are not his followers. The church exists to make disciples. And a disciple is one who follows the example of Jesus, hear me, in belief and action. It's not one or the other. You don't pick one. I'll take the belief. I don't have time for the action part. No, I'll take action because, man, that's where it's all at. Great. You can do a lot of things in the Lord's name, and it can be meaningless. Belief, because it doesn't matter what you do in Jesus' name if you refuse to follow his example and instruction. It's wholehearted devotion. If you don't take his yoke as your rabbi, it's meaningless. Matthew 7, 23 says, On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Ouch. But Lord, we did all this in your name. Yeah, but I never knew you. We never walked together. My dust never got on you. Who are you? You did all this stuff. You never... I was never leading you. You were doing a lot of things in my name. We had no relationship. So belief is important. But it's also action. Because faith without works is dead. And in that James scripture, the word dead there means lifeless, inactive, or powerless. Faith without works is lifeless. It's like an engine without a transmission. Okay. Well, it sounds pretty, but you ain't going nowhere. James 2.19 says, You say you have faith, for you believe that there's one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. At least the demons tremble. I believe, I believe, I believe. Great. The demons believe. The demons know. And they tremble. It matters what we believe about Jesus or else we lead people all sorts of places other than the cross of Christ, sacrifice, and death to self. There's many vehicles we can take to get from Amarillo to Canyon. You can take a motorcycle, you can take a car, you can take a truck. And I'm going to call those vehicles denominations, if you will. There's many vehicles you can take to get to Amarillo. But all of them from Canyon must head north. Not all roads from Canyon lead to Amarillo, and many lead away from it. 
It's the same with the cross and Jesus. When someone says, well, all roads lead to Jesus, it's an absolutely false statement. It's not proven out in anywhere else in the world. Not all roads lead to the same place. From here, you must go north to get the Amarillo. If you go south, you will not get there. I object. Object all day long and wind up not in Amarillo. Again, the church exists to make disciples. And bearing fruit is a byproduct of being a disciple. But to do that, we have to attach ourselves to the true vine, Jesus but we so often forget why we exist. Did you know we don't exist to gather on Sunday morning and worship? That is a byproduct of being a disciple. Did you know we don't exist to feed the poor and to heal the broken? That is a byproduct of discipleship. We don't exist to have potluck meetings and Sunday school. Those are a byproduct of being a disciple. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That's the mission statement. That's our mission statement as a Methodist church. And when we live out that purpose, the world is transformed. That's the dynamism of discipleship, the transformation of the world. The early Methodist movement lived out the calling to make disciples because the Church of England had to become more of an institution than a mission statement or a mission uh, station. It was more about the bureaucracy than the burden of making disciples. Sadly, it mirrors what the Methodist denomination has become today. Wesley believed that to be a disciple of Jesus meant that you were growing more and more like Jesus. It mattered what you thought and how you acted. It mattered that you connected yourself to a church and a group where you could grow in faith and be transformed. Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Disciples exist to make disciples. Our purpose is not in a career. Our purpose is not in a job. It's not in a place. Our purpose is wholehearted devotion to loving God and loving people. And we can live out that purpose in whatever job we have. You can live that purpose as a stay-at-home mom. You can live that purpose as a student. You can live that purpose as someone who's retired. The purpose doesn't change with your status in life. The purpose doesn't, it doesn't change with your age. The purpose is the same whether you're young or old, whether you're rich or poor, or whether you're healthy or sick. And when we live that out, then the power and the vitality of being a disciple is the transformation of the world. Church, Jesus is the true vine, and we are the branches. The call is to bear much fruit. And as disciples, branches of Jesus, the true vine. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you, Lord, for the call. Thank you for the privilege, Lord, to follow so closely to you, Lord, that your dust would get all over us. Lord, it is a privilege. Lord, all other gods stand far off in temples on hills, not alive, dead, distant. But you lead us. The Psalms speak of you leading us beside still waters. It speaks of you leading your people. Lord, not only is it an obligation, Lord, it's a privilege to walk so closely to you. I pray, Lord, we would not take that privilege for granted. I love you and I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.